mind is a strange thing, and you must begin by asking it, what is losing? Losing is a disease. Ah, but curable. That is the psychologist in my all-time favorite baseball movie, The Natural. 40 to 50 years earlier, many might have attached a negative stigma towards psychologists of any kind, and I don't think that's the case anymore. And that brings me to today's topic. What is a business psychologist? What do they do? What's their focus? How do they help CEOs, CFOs, or all others in business? And that's what we're going to learn today. I'm looking forward to chatting with UK-based business psychologist and coach, Dr. Russell Thackeray. In this conversation, we're going to hit topics like resilience, when to hire a business coach or psychologist, the intentions and execution of tough love, psychological capacity, and much more. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My visit with Dr. Russell Thackeray is coming up next. Dr. Russell Thackeray is a business psychologist, certified coach, trainer, and renowned speaker. He works with small and large businesses focusing on the soft issues where the outcomes are greater culture in higher levels of emotional and mental toughness. Now, here is a fascinating story about Dr. Thackeray. He started his career in music. It's interesting because lots of people have an an aspiration to be musical or or be be a musician. And uh, I think these days, um, what's fascinating, you can join things like X Factor or America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent, and you can become famous overnight. But classical musicians, which is what I was, we we have to study and practice, and that overnight success comes with you know ten to fifteen years worth of hard work that nobody sees. So yeah, I started playing the viola, which was um, one of the string instruments at the age of about eight or nine, and then joined National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, went to the Royal College of Music, studied there, got diplomas and scholarships and such like, and then became a professional musician. I worked in uh, the big London orchestras. I was uh, principal of one of the big BBC, BBC orchestras and freelanced all over the world with all sorts of different places. I was part of the Shirley Bassey Band at one stage and worked in the West End and Les Mis and all sorts of different um, things. And I often find that um, music's a really fascinating analogy for business because when you're working in a West End show or a Broadway show, as a musician, what you're doing is you're doing the same show eight nights a week whether you want to, whether you can, whether you've got problems at home, whether you've got uh, things going on in your life, whether your wife's upset with you, whether you've got a, a cold, whatever it might be, you've just got to turn up and do what you need to do. And um, it's also that thing where it's um, it's not about being the best, it's about not being the worst. It doesn't matter how many great shows you've done. If you do one terrible performance, that's the thing that's going to be marked out. And I often think that the difference between sports psychology and business psychology based on the world of music, which is where I came from, is this idea that um, it has much more to do with business. Because actually, in the sports world, you're preparing for one event maybe in every three years or something or every week or something. 
Whereas actually in the music world, you're doing it every single day. And that resilience that comes from being relentless is part of the process of being a musician. And, you know, you go into music because you think you're going to do wonderful artistic things. And, and in a sense, the more successful you get, you end up being more akin to a, um, a tradesperson because that's really the this, this status of it now. And of course, with COVID, the whole musical world has changed. In fact, I bumped into uh, an old colleague of mine who had been in Phantom of the Opera for 27 years. And he'd been made redundant. And I was doing some training work with the Royal Society. And he was asking me what I was doing. And he's still doing 27 years, eight shows a week, plus rehearsals, the same show in and out. And that takes a certain sort of resilience, doesn't it? That's not something I think I could have done. I've heard you say that the viola is the most entrepreneurial instrument in the orchestra. Is that correct? It, it seems to be the thing that uh, viola players tend to end up being the fixers and the business people. Uh, the violinists are all busy competing to be the best. And uh, the cellists are all busy showing off. And the bass players are usually drunk. And, of course, you know, um, and this is a musical joke, by the way. But uh, <laughs> it tends to be the case that, um, yeah, viola players tended to be the most entrepreneurial. And the, the people that ended up being the fixers. It's often the case, or the librarians or the orchestra managers, something about the, the instrument seems to lend itself to being um, something else other than just being a musician. So how do you go from being in the orchestra to the battlefield of business as a business psychologist? That, sir, is a big jump. Yeah, and it didn't happen A, overnight or B, in one step. So basically what happened was I... I was working as a musician, and then I started to work as a um, an orchestral fixer. And what that means is that you're bringing together groups of musicians to be able to, um, con you know, record other people's music. So, for example, a lot of the work of Rowan Atkinson, I worked for a composer called Howard Goodall, and I produced all these musicians, and we built things together. And he used to compose the music, and I'd get it recorded and sort things out. And and it was actually my wife, we were in one of the big recessions in the 80s, and my wife went to get a job as a, a and used what was called a recruitment agent. And I talked to the recruitment agent just socially, and she said, what we do is bring groups of people together to actually carry out projects. And I say, I do exactly the same thing. And she said, well, we do it with secretaries. And I said, I do it with musicians. The core skill was the same. So I went into recruitment and then ended up, um, because that was a huge sales job. You're on the phone selling left, right, and center, getting people to people work. We'd meet someone who'd come in as a candidate. Uh, we'd interview them with uh, for, I think, the metric was 10 minutes. Then I'd have to get on the phone and get them five interviews. And then, then they'd go off and do their interviews, and they'd try and get a job from that. And then every single day I was canvassing 30 to 50 calls a day, um, pulling in more and more jobs. So it was a, it was a, and I didn't know it was the sales. I didn't know this was hard. And one of the projects I went out to do was to work for um, one of the big vehicle manufacturers selling vans on the on the phone. And then so what was happening is I was I was doing projects and then going back into recruitment and then doing more projects and more sales. And of course, what happens in sales, if you're good at sales, within 10 seconds, you've been promoted out of being good at sales into becoming, into becoming a sales manager. And of course, then you're doing bigger scope sales. So you're doing business to business selling, and then you start doing bids and pitches and tenders, and then you become a sales director. And of course, you pitch the marketing piece on on the side of it. And then a lot of people, once they're in marketing, think this is sort of grown up, isn't it? Doing marketing because it's all about planning and strategy, and then it's all about psychology because it's all about can you get people to change their mind, hook in, adapt, think, change, contort, you know, decide to have your message 
change their behaviors in, in terms of either ringing you up or walking into your showroom, whatever it might be. And then suddenly you're in sales and marketing. And then I got an MBA because I thought actually business isn't just about sales and marketing. And I was quite fascinated what actually the finance people did because finance was always just about no, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about, and I didn't really have the argument to say, well, actually, if you learn the language of return on investment, actually, it's quite easy to persuade CFOs. But of course, there's always a healthy tension between accounting or finance at that stage and sales and marketing. So I got an MBA, understood more about it, then went into operations, went from operations into um, becoming the operations director of a large consultancy, and then became CEO of a law firm. And and it's all seemed to make sense. And I suppose one of the things that um, I discovered is that I was very good at some things, not so good at other things. I was a good, very good leader, not the world's greatest manager. I was very good at the technical side of the job, not so good at the detail. And uh, and for me, it was all about thinking to myself, well, how do I how do I build teams to allow me to be at my best and then be at their best? So actually, we get the best result. And and then of course having qualifications then in psychology was a vital part of the job because it's just, a, it's a vital, I mean, basically I think any CEO should have some sort of business psychology um, qualification because I think it gives them an, an edge in terms of the pop psychology that most people talk about. So that's how it works. And that didn't happen overnight. And then I started my own business. I worked with private equity companies, raised money, bought companies, sold companies. And then three or four years ago, I decided just to, having divested a large training company, just to go out on my own and just do things I wanted to do for myself. And then clients would ring me up and say, hey, would you do this? And hey, would you do that? And I had about seven or eight things I really enjoyed doing and didn't mind doing. And gradually that's whittled its way down from the things I thought the market wanted to things, and that I was really good at, to things that actually the market really does want and I was good at. And I think that's part of the revelation that happens in marketing and new new forms of market, the, the degree to which the market really controls and demands what's going on in the world and how you haven't got to bent, get bent out of shape that your pet project isn't of interest to anybody. <laughs> Because I had a pet project, no one wanted to buy it. So there you go. And so that's how I get to where I am today. You are a business savant. Uh, By the way, I want to put a pin in a couple of things you said. Uh, A, every CEO should have some business psychology. And number two, pop psychology. We're going to come back to those in just a a minute. Thank you very much for bringing those up. Uh, I know you, by the way, I'm, I'm assuming you like cricket. But in the United States, there's this thing called MLB baseball. One of my favorite movies is The Natural. And yes. and there's a it's over the top. I mean it's way over the top, but there is a psychologist who comes to speak to the team who talks about losing is a disease and and it's 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 funny. But I think of that scene every time the word psychologist pops into my mind. And so the question I have for you is, is there still, and I think the answer is no, but I still want to ask the question, is there still a stigma maybe to the whole concept of business psychology or business psychologists or is, or is there zero stigma? We'll be right back. 
Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I think it is zero stigma. I think actually what's interesting is that um, what's happened in the world of psychology and psychotherapy is that business psychology has pushed itself to the front um, because it used to be called occupational psychology and it used to sit within a subset of the larger psychological um, frameworks and oxykes, occupational psychologists became a thing and then business psychology has pushed its way even further forward. And, um, you know, I belong to a, a body of business psychologists and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's its own thing. I now have an opinion. Now, this opinion has been forming even before I got introduced to you uh, through your, your publicist or your PR person. I truly believe every business, if they can afford it, should have a business psychologist. Now, I do not view myself as being the spokesperson for the business psychology consulting firm world, but my opinion is if a business can afford it, every company should have a business psychologist, yay or nay. Well, I think you'll find that more companies have one already, but they're often called coaches. And actually the, 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 the practice of coaching and business psychology is pretty similar. You often find coaches are business psychologists and vice versa. Uh, and you'll often find that good coaches don't rely actually on the principles of psychology to be able to have value. They have to have a wider skill set than that, as do I. So um, the fact that I have an evidence base and I have informed um, an informed knowledge base is irrelevant if I can't turn that into being a practical set of advice tools for a CEO saying, hey, do I, how do I change my culture or how do I get the most out of my team? I mean, you can sit and talk theory all day long, but you have to make it, you have to pinstripe that theory, as we call it over here. You have to put a suit on the theory so that actually, you know, CEOs get it. When I think of a business coach, I usually think, but they're not a psychologist. They don't have the education that 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 you do. So if they're trying to guide or give advice in some people in areas where they may not have the, the credibility to do that. I'm just wondering, can some coaches, and I'm talking the non-business aspect of, of what you do, can they do more harm potentially? Yes, but, but anyone can. Okay. I mean, you can have people who are qualified up to their eyeballs who can do harm. Um, and, and, and there's, there's some quite important things. There has to be a fantastic chemistry between the people you work with as advisors. Uh, in, in psychotherapy, it's often said that uh, 40% of all the affect that comes from a, um, a therapeutic relationship is based on the quality of the relationship. And I do believe that to be true. I mean, I'm working with a, a large client at the moment. We work together for a while. And, and I can come along and say, hey, have you thought about this? And they'll go, you're mad. But because you've got a good track record, we can listen to you. Um, 
but I could never have done that at the beginning because I hadn't earned my stripes to be able to have the credibility to ask that question. So I think you have to find your access point into any organization and whatever that might be, whether it's resilience or burnout or leadership on my side, or for some people it's it's a CFO process or re-engineering or whatever it might be. And and yes, the, the, thing, the thing you'll find with a lot of coaches, the ones which are good around change management, they've usually got the psychological underpinning as part of their, of, um, their professional training because it sits there. In fact, even accountants actually have some psychological training, which is even scarier than you know the poor coach you were mentioning earlier. Well, we just. But I am being naughty there. <laughs> well, I'll say this: uh, we just interviewed Tiffany Couch uh, recently. She is a a gifted forensic accountant, and she has she's nailing it on the people side of the business, and that she doesn't need that training. It just she's learned on the way. So anyway, that, that that's a so good point. A lot of it, a lot of it is systematized common sense, and I think, um, and I think. What, what what is it that people with a bit of wisdom and a, some gray gray hair have? They've been there, they've seen it. The trouble is they're rooted in the past and they don't always think about the future. Or people like myself who are more futury, ideary, what they're able to do is to is to just to bring a fresh perspective. But always we're talking about common sense because you're always talking about a fundamental structure that's operating within a market, within a context. And however clever and smart it is, it still has to adhere to the the world in which it operates. So for me, the idea of starting with the root of common sense is, I think, is important. Now, the famous phrase is that the trouble with common sense is it ain't all that common in in our organization can be a bit of the challenge. And actually, what common sense often just means is what I believe to be right. And that's one of the challenges I get with working with organizations is, you know, someone who can come in and um, throw their weight around as I can, can often challenge the people who are most at fault for the things which are going on, which are often the leaders who are engaging you in the first place. I'm sure many of the people you talk to would tell you the same thing. I hope I'm not distracting you by taking notes. I just wrote down systematized common sense. That's a good one. You, you ought to put a TM on that one. Hey, I want to hit... I I'll, I'll put it in my book. <laughs> you need to, yeah, Yes. I, I want to bring up three words. Three words surrounding your work. And and this is just me reading uh, some of the content on your uh, QED website. Uh, Angela Duckworth, if we were to, if I were to say, what's her word, her word is grit. So like, like Duckworth and grit, I would say, Dr. Thackeray, your word is probably the biggest word is resilience. Am I correct? Yeah. That why is and it may be a common sense question or a common sense uh, answer. Why is resilience so important to you? Why is that something you feel like you need to bring that to the table as you start meeting, building relationships with CEOs? Is that an issue that they're struggling with? Um, it's a great question, and it's and it's so layered, and it's. It's a delivery problem. It's also a marketing problem. So there's no doubt over the last couple of years, people have talked about this idea of resilience without knowing what it is. In the sense that we talk about stress without knowing what that is anymore. Burnout is also achieving this idea of um, being defined into oblivion because no one knows what it is. And mental health is now going the same sort of way. So I think resilience, people sort of know what it is. 
they think it's grit and actually part of it is and it's this ability to be able to come back when something's gone wrong now that thing could be because of a change or it could be because of a mistake or it could be because of some sort of catastrophic catastrophic external event and what we know is it's a completely normal thing but also it's a set of skills as well so I found it fascinating. And what, what's interesting recently is people now are uh, starting to, to use terms like adaptability rather than resilience. But um, I still think it's fascinating because actually resilience and competence together for me are the things that generate the vast majority of performance. And if you think about one of the models that we have, it's, it is the, that thing. And what's fascinating is if you want to change someone's output tomorrow, you look at competence. And if you want to change it over the longer term, you look at their resilience. Because their resilience is things like accountability. It's things like um, fessing up when you get things wrong. It's the things like making mistakes in the first place. Because, you know, trial and error and innovation and, you know, lead to mistakes. It's about having a psychologically safe culture. Because if you don't and feel enabled to make mistakes, then you won't make them, therefore you'll never learn. So it's about building an organization that's really fast and reactive and agile to be able to constantly innovate, constantly get better, because actually what you've got is is a bunch of uh, resilient leaders who create a resilient culture with people who themselves are resilient. And that means having adult conversations, which means you have to get out of this mindset, which is, I can't talk to people because I might hurt their feelings. And this is a this is what the if you talk about resilience and you talk about one word, probably the subset of words are tough love. Because actually I'm a great believer that people come to work because they want to do their best work. Therefore they come to work because they want to be treated like an adult. And if we're all treating them all like children all the time and we don't give them the accountability and therefore we can actually talk to them about the performance when it's brilliant and care and nurture and really water the plant as it were the love piece but also the tough pieces when it's going off track it's sitting down with people and saying hey this is where your performance is going on track what are you going to do about it and so bringing coaching skills into the workplace bringing accountability and having those conversations where people don't need to be bent out of shape but if we start by this terrible curse of being frightened of our people and being in that situation where um, uh, um, we can't have the conversations that are necessary because we're not dealing with them like adults, then we never get the resilience we need to do all these great things to create create the organizations we need to have. When I thought about resilience, I thought of a word picture. And I just want you to correct me if if I'm mistaken. Glass can be very beautiful and it serves... There, there's there's a there's a utility to glass as well, but if it's broken, it's hard to put back together. But then I was thinking a putty, some type of a putty, and it can be shaped. It can be someone can hit it. It can change shape, but you can put it back to the original shape. Is is that another way of thinking about? Resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's, there's two or three different. There's lots of different analogies we use ropes, but one one my colleague uses is uh, balls. If you drop a glass ball, it's broken. If you have a rubber ball, it bounces. And and my phrase has always been actually, if you get a piece of putty, the trouble is it's never more than a, a set of putty. Whereas actually, if you want people, if you if you've made a mistake, or if you've if there's something you need to change, 
you don't want to bounce back to where you were. You want to bounce forward. Right. After this catastrophic event, you need to have learned. And therefore, for me, that we need to encourage mistakes because that's where the mistakes, planned mistakes, planned risks, not just chaos, but this is how you get organizational growth because people are attempting to get something wrong. If they get it wrong, then fixing it and then making a different mistake next time around. So what happens? You punch, you punch back, you bounce back faster, you bounce, you bounce, bounce forward. In other words, and what's interesting if you look at the the shape of um, um, recessions, for example, it's the same as people's performance. You can have W-shaped recessions, U-shaped, Z-shaped, K-shaped recessions, and people bounce back in the same sorts of ways. It's really interesting how the economic analogy works for people and their own um, response to change and therefore for me it's about bouncing forward and not bouncing back so i like your putty analogy because i like the idea that um you'll be a different shape when you come back my only thing with the putty putty analogy is hasn't got any more so i like the thing that when you come back there's more of it somehow good point good point you already brought up my second word It's actually two words, but we're counting it as one, and that is tough love. Let me ask a specific question about tough love. Why is it that, well, again, I think a lot of us know the answer. We don't like conflict, and that may be the answer, but there are CEOs in large, very large organizations that don't like having that tough love conversation. What is your approach in helping people to at least start the tough love conversation? My, my starting approach is, do you want to be treated like a child or an adult at work? And most people who, unless they're working in a school, um, most people say they want to be treated like an adult, in which case you say, well, this is how adults are treated. So where it goes wrong, we need to discuss it. And where it goes right, we need to praise and reward you. And it's as simple as that. And the problem is that people get bent out of shape because of their own backgrounds. People arrive with their own set of flaws, attachment issues, psychotherapeutic issues, and and they arrive in the workplace. And then a leader's got to be able to set that criteria in a way that's possible for that person to buy into. And if you have, you know, 10 strong people, 10 great attachments, 10 greater set of personal psychologies, you'll have a brilliantly resilient team. But if you've got two or three, maybe one who was abused as a child, that person comes to work and actually is, is, is more frail than the average. And so that leader has to have a more fluid approach to be able to deploy the tough love. But in all cases, should still be treating them like an adult. Because the last thing someone needs who's had a, a troubled childhood is still to be treated like a child because that triggers. Now, the big problem now is the way litigation's working and this idea that because I feel something to be true, it must be true in law. And this is a slight issue that's coming around a little bit, which we which troubles us somewhat. Because of course, in law, they've defined feeling as being anything, anything at all. Whereas of course in psychology, we actually define a feeling as being something. And if only they'd sat down with psychologists, they could have made that a little bit clearer. Because that's what's troubling managers. I'll often go in and talk to people who've been trained on mental health face first aid and they know exactly everything they're not allowed to do but no one no one has a clue of what they can do and it's about saying you can say these things you can say these things you can say these things well what happens if a person takes offense well you didn't t- say it right then did you learn and do it right the next time round. because leaders have got to be better in order to demonstrate tough love you've got to be better at doing it and being being it yourself the trouble is a lot of leaders are the least skilled um 
at people management. This is it's sort of staggering, really. The, it's the old fish rots from the head idea, you know, that um, people at the tops of organisers had so little organised, um, had have had so little development. They really don't get this stuff, and they're just sort of stomping around, you know, complaining because the world is all about being woke, rather than thinking, well, then if the world's about being woke, how am I tough love? How do I operate tough love in that world? Because we're all part of the context in which we operate. And this is about waking up, and this is a bit about psychology. You've got to take account of your context. You know, you can't work in a sort of um, even a benevolent dictatorship anymore. That doesn't really work so well. And, I, you know, I've worked with some small companies in America in um, small little family businesses, for example, where, you know, they have their own quite exciting culture. And um, the reason that we have laws is to protect work workforces from poor leadership. That's what it's for, because actually – Many leaders are poor at actually just having sensible conversations without effectively mentally slapping people around the around the building, which is not necessary because tough love applies both ways. Because you know, if you're able to dish it out, you have to be able to take it as well. I would. I always question someone going into a tough love conversation. What is the motive? I mean, really, what? Let's get to the heart of this. Is it because you're trying to manipulate or you're trying to control, or is it that you really care about that other person and the business as a, as a whole? Again, I would think motive has to do that. That gets to the heart of the question, right? I, you know, that I love that. And that's a part of what we talk about here. There's two bits of tough love. There's intention and execution. And if your intentions are okay, but it comes out wrong, it's because you executed poorly. And that's okay, because that's skill. And, you know, learn from it and fess up to your mistake and don't don't make the same mistake twice. Uh, and that can build a great relationship with people. But if your intentions are poor, that's that's a problem. And, and it's it's important to say that, you know, feedback or radical candor, I mean, having to write a book called Radical Candor instead of just saying, you know, getting what you want, it, it, it strikes me as the part of the problem here. You know, what we're doing is sitting down with people and saying, these are the results we've agreed. This, These are the skills and behaviours you need. Either you're getting the results because you're applying the right skills and behaviours or you're not. So, you know, you've got the what and the how in all cases, intention and execution in all cases. And it's about managers sitting back and just sitting with people and having adult conversations about those. And sometimes, you know, the manager has, or the leader has ill-defined the objective or the objectives changed halfway around because the politics have changed or because actually some customers come in and said, oh, we can't do that. Or because the regulators le- leapt out one day and said, hey, we've got a new accounting regulation. You know, you just got to roll with those punches, haven't we? And things will change, which means the intention and the goal changes, which means the execution and the skills and behaviours change. In all cases, the radical candor or the feedback is about the output or the execution. It's not about the person. The person's not wrong. The person's not flawed, but they can do things wrong. My third and final word, and, and I hope, I, I'm curious what you're going to think about my third word. So I, I did my homework and I was listening to some of your content on YouTube and I learned when the best time is to hire a business psychologist. And that's where my third word came up. You hire a business psychologist when you don't really think you need them because when you really do need a business psychologist, guess what? You don't have my third word. You don't have the capacity to bring, you're stressed out. 
you may be too overly stressed to absorb and to take in all the great things that you can deliver to them in terms of value. My third word is capacity. How does that relate to your work? I thought you were going to say burnout, actually, which is usually the third that, word that, that people. I was going to say site, so resilience I'm of burnout. To change the site. No, <laughs> no, 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 you cannot do that. I capacity no, no, it's fine. for me that was more out of fascination. Uh, burnout, yeah, burnout was really my fourth one, but it kind of relates to resilience a little bit. But but capacity is absolutely spot on. You, this is what people forget. I, I was talking to someone this morning who's who's at work and and her boss has given her seventy three different things to do and she's overwhelmed and she's going to burn out and and, and you have to say to your boss okay i'll do these 73 things but what are the other 73 things i need to stop doing because by their very nature if you're given these things these things must be more important than those things and and people have forgotten the art of negotiating with their boss because bosses sometimes get into this mindset that what they say must be right but actually, this is what I say about leaders and managers. Their capacity to set tasks and set objectives is usually quite poor because they're they're usually dealing with someone senior's very hot mess. And then they're just creating more hot mess through the organization rather than sitting going, hang on a second, what do we really need to do here? What do what's the actual objective we're attempting to achieve here? What are the deadlines? What are the regulatory deadlines? The, and then the nice to haves. And most of the time, people are doing a lot of the stuff they like to do without the stuff that they have to do. And bosses have to be able to stand up at the board level and say, you know what, we're not doing that. We're doing this instead. And again, this concept of capacity, I believe, is critical personally and professionally. I want to throw out a a title, a book title. Maybe we can come back and talk about this title down the road. The name of the book, and it's been out for about 20 years or more, The book is called Margin, and the subtitle is Restoring Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Resources to Overloaded Lives. And he is an MD, and the author is Richard Swenson. I've heard him talk. He is phenomenal. And so when you brought up capacity, I just thought, this is great. So I I, I apologize for not bringing up burnout, but I just, I wanted to hear you talk about capacity. It's brilliant. Capacity, I mean, you might argue that a leader's job, I, I mean, we, we have our own leadership method model, which is about scanning the horizon, building the capacity. Because unless you can create an organization that allows you to achieve your goals, it never will, because it's always achieving the last set of goals, which you never really achieved. And that's it. Business doesn't work like a set of projects, which is where one thing starts and another thing stops. Everything overlaps. Uh, I, I remember I remember this where, uh, in working in a large consultancy. We went into a big telecoms company and um, we had to do some productivity savings. And it was an eight-month project. And my boss and I, and my boss was a brilliant man, one of the most brilliant people he'd ever worked with. He was absolutely staggering to work with. And he walked in and he just said, let's go down to the project office. And I said, okay. He said, let's have a look at the project office. And he looked at the project and said, we'll cut out those 500 projects. I said, okay. And I said, what now then? He said, that's it, we're done. We've got eight months work finished now. That's it. We just now sit and relax for seven and a half months because actually that's all you have to do. You just strip out the duplication in the project office or the program office or a manager's. Because if you look at some of those offices, some of the projects are duplicated. Some of them are working against each other. Some of the jobs that managers are doing are literally directly conflating with somebody else's. 
but we're just having we're playing politics so we don't talk about them because this is a pet project and this will get me noticed so this idea of ripping waste out of the business is how you create capacity and i never forget that and in consultancies we have what we call bench strength and that's how we create that capacity we actually have people who can sit back and actually be developed they have time on their side from every now and then to do some development and i'll go and talk to organizations who'll say we haven't oh we haven't got time for bench strength we haven't got time we haven't got time and they can spend literally an hour telling me how much time they don't have and i said well, you've just wasted an hour telling me that you haven't got any time you've spent an hour telling me how busy you are you've spent an hour also talking about sport this morning so there's two hours you could get back today. And, and it's it's fascinating how many organizations waste time. Uh, if all you have to do to get capacity is just to look at how much time you spend in meetings every single week. Simple as that. You have a brilliant mind. We need to move into what I call the three psychological tyrannies. But real quickly, don't underestimate the concept of capacity. I, I view capacity in the three buckets. There's structural capacity. And that's usually, again, my perception, what business owners, CEOs are thinking about, structural capacity. Uh, think of manufacturing plant. We got the capacity to, you know, produce 5,000 cars a day, structural capacity. But really what you and I were talking about was really psychological uh, capacity yeah. and social uh, capacity. So again, I just, I love, love, love this concept. And I hope we hear more from that uh, from people like you and you, I, again, brilliant. So I want to talk about the three psychological tyrannies. I have not teed this up for you. You saw my three buckets, but you don't even know where I'm headed with this. So let's talk about the tyranny of goal setting. Again, I'm not, I'm not going to prep you. I'm not going to lead the witness. I'm just going to ask you, and you could say, well, Mark, there is no tyranny. But what is the tyranny, controversial or not, of goal setting? Um, interesting. Um, I don't know. If, well, it is. what's interesting. Let's, let's assume there is one. And what I'd say is that we spend too much time thinking about them and too little time executing so that'd be the first thing. The second thing is that we don't use goal setting to achieve what it's for. So in human terms, we use the feature of confirmation bias to say, if we desire something or believe something or aim at something, confirmation bias works by lining up the forces behind it so you notice what you need to say. So you generate conscious effort and luck to be able to achieve those goals. Okay. Now, the problem is that we often don't set goals because we are very clear about what we don't want and quite vague about what we do want. And therefore, that confirmation bias doesn't come to play. The second thing about the tyranny of goal setting is that organizations think they have it because shareholders or stakeholders need them to be able to invest. And that's absolutely fine. It's possible to run goal setting or vision setting or whatever it might be in one part of the organization that doesn't need to touch the rest of the organization. You can see these as discrete activities. That's what I'd say. I wouldn't say it as tyranny. I'd say more there's a there's a lack of, I would say, um, Goal setting has been part of your capacity planning. Good point. I wouldn't say it's tyranny. I just say it as a must. I'd say it as an opportunity lost 
most times because the girls aren't worked out in a smart the idea of smart girls is is horrendous it just it's pointless so you know you spend so much time figuring out a smart girl you've actually lost the point of what you're trying to achieve so it's about the the, it's about the the creativity of setting goals and the harnessing of the the natural state of the brain to to try uh, to fire off confirmation bias so I'm trying to bump up the ratings here by using the term, the tyranny of goals. I mean, you and I have goals. The first thing I do every morning, I have a habit tracker. So there's seven habits that I track every morning. And and it's really helped me personally. So it helps me to achieve my bigger uh, goals. But what we don't, when I say we, this is a blanket statement, so I got to be careful. But if a if a business student digs hard enough, you might find a few articles here and there about the dark side of goal setting. And so in your neck of the woods, maybe uh, across the pond a little bit, there's a company called VW where they had some goals and they wanted to sell more vehicles, but they cheated. So I'm just saying that there can be a dark side to goal setting. They can be extremely powerful, but there can also be a dark force to goals as well. That was where I was but I think from. you're talking, but just to jump in there, I don't think you're talking about goals. I think you're talking about strategies because goals are what we want to achieve. Strategies are how we achieve them. And it's the strategy that went wrong for VW, not the goal. The goal is still right. The uh, issue was they enough. went onto the dark side to, to achieve them. See, it's interesting. People say to me, of course, you and I'll have goals. I don't. I've, I've done with the goal setting thing. Because I have a different way of thinking about work and life now because I have a different way of – so basically I have a quadrant against which I assess my life, which is based on fun, getting me somewhere, intellectual challenge or money. And so I'll work for money and hate it or I'll work for fun and love it. So I think I think you use goals differently at different phases for different purposes. And that's why organizations can have different goals at different times. For me, it's a it's a – it's an um, iterative, dynamic process. But I would say that because I don't come from the Drucker world of MBO. I come from the more scientific side of scorecarding and process work. So I would say that, you know, you have organizations with shorter planning horizons and much more able to be fluid in the way that they adapt. Well, and we're actually, we're on the same page. And I should even say, for me personally, especially where I am in my season of life, it's more about the journey. So what journey yeah. am, am I on? And I want to get into another tyranny. And again, this is probably very, very controversial. And after I share the word with you and get your thought on it, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. The tyranny of personality profiles. First of all, is there a tyranny of personality profiles or profiling? Um, that's, that's really quite interesting. You're hesitating. Um, what, what? <laughs> You're hesitating. No, 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 because, because actually, uh, I don't know whether it's a tyranny. I think it's a myth more than anything else, but you're right. I, I mean, it makes me laugh when people are using personality profiles to recruit people. Um, yes, there probably is a tyranny. I think it's, 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 um, the word paradigm is, uh, is, is people's worldview. And I think we're in a paradigm where, personality profile 
profiling is still seen to be important. I say that, though, with a great deal of respect for my colleagues who, in psychology, make a lot of their money from personality profiling. And use properly, if you use something like the big five, as um, or you might call it the ocean. Ocean, right. States, actually. Yeah. Um, that's, that's got a lot of legitimacy. It's a meta model of pro of uh, personality agreeing, programming agreeing. it's got a good you know it's got a it's got a degree the thing about personality profile is not saying this is your person therefore the fix forever it's this is the line in the sand everything after here is open to debate it's whether this person has the capacity to get where you want everyone can get everywhere it's just some people can get there more quickly or more easily and that's i think is a nice place to start there's a very famous um story in the uk about um the civil service who used to recruit large numbers of people and used to put them through the toughest personality profiling and um, assessment methods and one department took the people who were meant to have been fired from the profile so they're going to take 25 and they and they interviewed and profiled 50 they took the wrong 25 they took 26 to 50 and they and they and they fired <laughs> one to 25 and after um, I think it was two years, all of the all of that second uh, that second grade bunch of people had hit all the targets and objectives that were expected from that group because they've been well managed. The raw material doesn't matter in, man- in, in uh, business. What matters is what you do with it. It's different to making glass, isn't it? Because you've got imperfection glass that's fixed, but you get a person you can have all the imperfections. I mean, you can have people who've been to prison, all that sort of stuff. Bringing you can turn the you know, turn them into the most skills, brilliant person. You you hit a lot of my trigger words. You, you, that that was a beautiful answer. My last tyranny is one that I know. I think you actually talk about this on your website. I think, in fact, I know you do. That's the tyranny of bad incentive pay plans. First of all, is there a tyranny there? <laughs> Yeah, I think we spend far too much time thinking about manipulating numbers and pay plans. I mean, the, the number of times, especially at the senior executive level, where um, all apps one's interested in is a pay plan, their incentive level. I, I risk we were called in once as a reward organization to say there's a CEO of a very large um, charity who said, justify for me how I should have this much money. <sighs> you know, that's poor, isn't it? But the thing is, people like money. People, there's a lot of people in the world who are greedy, and a lot of people work for money because that's their thing. Because they don't have the other things working for them, uh, they don't have meaning in their lives. What they have is this need for money. So we spend far too much time in, in basically thinking about how do I rig the system to get paid as much as possible, rather than thinking how can I do a better job. Um, how do I play the politics rather than how do I get noticed? You know, it's. It's it's actually quite an old idea. Again, another old paradigm, really. I always assume you work with a lot of big companies. You do, but you've also mentioned that you work with some smaller companies. In the smaller business world, have you ever seen an incentive plan you just said, that is so good. I would love to see that replicated elsewhere. Can Can you think of one? Do you know what? N- no, because where I what I often see is that What's good in one place doesn't work somewhere else. And I think this is part of the problem. You get these consultants who go in and say, I mean, 
famously a, a large US consultant who just changed the name of a client on the front page of a document and forgot to change the footer halfway through. <laughs> and just taking ideas and applying them from one place to the other. I think you have to create something that's right for you and your culture, where you're going. I would say that the incentive plan for Tesla would be very different from Fred Blog's hardware store in India. It's got I, to be. I, I, I'm smiling. I love that answer. Hey, I, I'm one of those crazy guys. Maybe I'm overly zealous, but I do love business. I, I love sitting down and talking anybody about their business. You know, how, how do you generate value? How do you create it? How do you capture it? So the business of psychologists or business psychology firms, I'm curious, is, is that an easy business? Is it hard? Is it when you launched your practice, was that an easy marketing and sales job or did, did business come easily at first? Uh, the answer is uh, um, we don't. I certainly don't go out and say we are a business psychology business. We actually talk about outcomes as subjects. So I talk about resilience, burnout, leadership, culture. Um, all my colleagues will talk about psychological profiling, recruitment, or processes, people processes, and then business psychology is part of the backup of that. The other question I have is: Is this a push business or a pull? As in. Do people come to you or do you go to them? Do you do you have to go out and find your client base? Both. So we do outbound, outbound I do outbound marketing and I do um, people approach me and say, hey, we've heard about this piece of work or, you know, you've done this piece of work and you do this piece of work for us. And, and my intention now isn't to be building thousands of clients. So the push marketing is slightly less, but I still do it because I enjoy meeting new people. And hey, I like marketing. I've been doing it for many years. I enjoy it. It's fun. Because you played the viola. Exactly. And you have to be relentless. And whether you like it or not, you've got to get into that pit and grind out another performance. This has been a very fascinating conversation. You mentioned Drucker a few minutes ago about maybe presumably the father of of MBO. But he remember, he also said that the best way to learn management is through the liberal arts. And, yeah. and he said that yeah. over and over. Uh, I'm curious if a business student, CEO, CFO, COO, mid-level manager, they want to read a book or two just to start thinking about some of the concepts we addressed on during this conversation. You use the word pop psychology. So I'm assuming pop psychology books will not be included, but are there any books that you could recommend that are very accessible? Even in your own consulting, are there some books that you say, I think this would be very helpful. Just, just uh, it'd be a great foundational uh, book for you. Um, yeah, it's a really great question actually, because when we first, the reason I was a couple of seconds later was actually thinking about that question. Do you know what? I remember reading The One Minute Manager many, many years ago. I can't, I can't even remember who it's by now, but it was one minute praising, it was one minute telling off. I remember the phrase, catch people doing a great job. And I remember that from that book. Love it. Great book to get started with. Um, I love Carl Newport's ideas about, and some really great ideas about new work and steep work and studying. I like 
Daniel Pink, his book on buoyancy, I think that's an absolutely brilliant book. He is of psychology amazing. By all means, the great stuff. Well, the, the, I think some of the big thinkers of modern the modern world are really great. I think um, Daniel Eagleman has written some brilliant books about the brain, but written in such a way that you learn so much more. I, I write, read Harari because I think that's about business and it's about social anthro- anthropology. But if you do yourselves a favour, you can actually subscribe for free to the Journal of Neuroscience. And there's a new article every single day about what's new, about the fact that, you know, d- d- discoveries about dementia, how bees work together to create cultures. You know, every single day there's a new weird idea. And a bit like Seth Godin, it's to think about a little bit every single day, something different, something just as just to sprinkle some pixie dust into your life every single day. It's not also about just being in the psychology. It's about being in the world, just discovering things and thinking, how does that add to this? How does so I've learned more from studying e- economics this year about people than I have from studying psychology, I would say. There's one title you didn't mention, and I'm curious if you've read uh, him. Uh, that would be the book Influence uh, by Cialdini. Oh, yes. Is that one yes. that you feel comfortable recommending? Yeah, it's great, but it, but it's it's and it's fine. And his other book, Presuasion, okay. As I didn't well. care for that one as much. No, well, it just it felt like the you know like Covey's eighth habit. You know, I've I've written a bestseller now, and it's more money because I've got a big tax bill. Um, and I think that they were of their time. And I think where we are now is we're in a new time. We're in a new. I think we're in the whitewater rabbits of a rapids. I should say not rabbits, of a, of. Post-COVID, we're in a different world. You know, I work a lot with leaders in Africa, and we're peddling 60s Western management theory at them. And as I've been working with a new, about a new theory of African leadership, and I think, you know, the way that America's going and the way you're, you know, the empire sort of collapsing in on itself, new things are needed, new ideas. And I think sometimes Cialdini is something from the past. It's a good bedrock. And we do need the bedrock, like ocean. But what we need to be doing is be innovating every single day now. And that's why the excitement for business comes from. So in three years' time, you and I'll chat again, and we'll be going, wow, have we heard about this new this new thing that's appeared from, from quantum theory or because the James Webb telescopes created a new analogy or we've got fission instead of fusion or whatever it is, which way around it is. These things will change business as well. Uh, you've got the floor. Uh, I, you can j- just share anything you want about your, your business, your website over at QED. Uh, how, if, if people want to learn more about your work, what do you have to say? Well, the first thing is we have a website, qedod.com. Uh, I also have a podcast called Resilience Unraveled. And I have some, like you, I get brilliant guests and I learn so much from my guests. And every now and then I'll do my own episode. And sometimes that's just me musing about some ideas i think the last one i did was about psychological safety just having a muse and i think that's quite interesting uh face facebook linkedin i mean anybody wants to join me in linkedin is always welcome and um please come and join me and and you you moaned you, you mentioned i should say the lack of a book which i've only been talking about now for 12 and a half years and i'm halfway through seven books at the moment so one of these days, one of them will actually be finished. Because the trouble with having lots of ideas, as you might know, is execution can be the trial. <laughs> Maybe may the title is psychological capacity. 
Could be. It's called fluidic leadership at the moment. But, you know, I've actually had so many different titles. The issue is the bit between the title and the final cover. That's the bit I'm challenged with. Good point. <laughs> hey, thank you for, for joining us. This has been remarkable. Loved it. Thanks so much for, for having me. It's been great. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. I really, really, really like him. Have you ever been at an event where you met someone for the first time, you get to spend maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes with them, and you thought as you walked away, maybe a great friend. That's exactly my thoughts on Dr. Russell Thackeray. He would be a tremendous friend. Don't forget his website is qedod.com, qedod.com, where you can learn more about his coaching, his training, and his consulting. And don't forget, he also mentioned his podcast called The Resilience Unraveled Podcasts. And you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts, including this one, or you can just go to his website, again, qedod.com. Dr. Russell Thackeray, you are an amazing human being, and thank you for being on the show. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.